what shall be after him. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 3. We're about to go into chapter 4. But before we get there, we're looking at verse 18 of chapter 3. Uh, why does Solomon say that men don't have advantage over beasts or animals? Because we all die. It's like it doesn't matter if you're smart, intelligent, human, or animal, you're all going to die and decompose. It's a very, very uh, happy thought, right? But this is what Solomon is presenting us with a reality, okay? Uh, verse 21 gives us two thoughts here. It says that we cannot see the spirits of men which live eternally, and we cannot see the souls of beasts which die with the creature. So he's saying, okay, I get it. Like, humans are going to live forever, either in heaven or hell, and beasts, they just disappear. They don't have a spirit that lives forever. But regardless of the situation, while we're here on earth, we can't see that difference anyway. Like, that's not in our physical realm to perceive. And it says very something else interesting in that verse. It tells us that we cannot fully understand the depth of the spiritual nature of man, nor the depth of the soul or the uh, intelligence and emotional capabilities God has put in the animals. And I think that this is um, very, an, a very interesting thought because even though we are believers and we understand that Jesus Christ lives within us and we're striving to live in a realm that's not here, we're trying to live for eternity, we will never understand the depth of the capabilities of God-likeness that God has put in us. Because Jesus has made us in his image from the very beginning with Adam. And we will never fully comprehend what that really, really means to have the capability of reflecting God now until we get to eternity and it's over. And so, yes, we strive. We strive to really uh, live by God's word, and that's very important. But the reason why this is, is, is you'll never find the bottom of this. This is unsearchable. It's because God is unsearchable. And because God is so unsearchable, he's put an unsearchable level of Christ-likeness into all of us by the fact that we're human. We're made in his image. And so we will spend the rest of our lives trying to become more and more like God. The very reason we were created, to be, reflect God and bring glory to him. But it's also actually true of animals. We are still today trying to find out what is the emotional and intellectual limits of certain animals. Because we don't know. We don't understand how they think. That just shows us how an, a, a, what an amazing creator we have to put that depth into everything in creation. Verse 22 uh, leaves us uh, with a thought about this whole, uh, this whole idea of earth and, and being empty and that living for now is not the way God designed us to live. What is verse 22? What is the practical wisdom that it tries to leave us with there? Man should be happy with the <clears throat> signs given by God. Yes. Yes. And again, this is a perspective of under the sun. This is the perspective of Solomon explaining life without God in view, because that's what he does throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. He flips between this perspective of life on earth and life with God, life without God, life with God. And verse 22, he says, 
in all practicality, guys, we only get one life, and you get a lot of what you get a lot so just enjoy what you've got. Because you don't know what's coming after you. So you might as well enjoy it. Now, the interesting thing about enjoying life now is that you can't truly enjoy life now without starting to enjoy eternity now. Colossians 3 tells us this. Colossians 3, 22 and 24, through 24, you don't have to turn there. It says, Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye services, men pleasers. Don't do stuff for just the people around you. But in singleness of heart, have one focus in your work, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye, see, for ye serve the Lord Christ. This is literally what Jesus is saying. You work for me now, I'll reward you for your earthly work in heaven. So the fulfillment in what we do today can only be realized if we're doing it for tomorrow. Does that make sense? You will only get the full meaning out of life now, even in the practical, physical realm of doing your daily work, if you're doing it for God. That's the way God designed us to be. He designed our spirits to be unsearchable. He designed us to need to impact eternity. And like we talked about last week, the only way that we're going to impact eternity is to connect God to now. God wants to be involved in what you're doing every day, and that's what's going to give you meaning in your work. And, and we did talk about this uh, last week as well, but just a reminder, the, the most meaning that you're going to find in, in your work, the, the deepest meaningful work you will ever do is whatever work you're doing, doing it for God. Because that connects eternity to now. And God promises, if you do that for me, I'll reward you in heaven, whether your boss is fair to you or not. And that was comforting to Paul's audience when he said it, because Paul's audience were slaves to people that weren't going to be fair to him then. And it's fair and it's comforting to us today because we know that there's corrupt employers all over this country. But God says, you do the work for me, I'll pay you back in heaven. But if you're always trying to right your own wrongs and work for yourself, I hope you get it right now because God's not going to reward you for working for yourself later. So really, we need to connect whatever we're doing now to eternity. That's the most practical way to live. It brings you joy. It brings you freedom. Any questions or comments on chapter 3 before we move on to chapter 4? In Genesis uh, 3, 17 to 19, uh, is it not contradict that uh, God says uh, that the work is said to be part of God's curse on man? Oh, yes, I understand what you're saying. Okay, so God designed work for man before the fall. So when God created man, he put him in the garden, and he said, start naming the animals. That's work, right? So he, work is not part of the fall, but yes, you are right. Work was worked into the fall. Because when man fell, his curse was your work was going to be difficult and work against you. So work itself is not part of the fall. In fact, when uh, the new earth is created, God's going to give us all jobs. <laughs> God says, if you serve me faithfully, I'm going to give you regions to rule. That's going to be work. 
So in eternity, we're going to be working. We're not going to just be sitting on a, on a cloud playing a harp, okay? That's, the, that's some Catholic idea, I suppose. I don't know. Some guy made that up who was lazy. But work is, is absolutely part of God's design, but the difficulty of work is part of the curse. So yes, work is part of the curse, but not itself. It's the sweat and the toil and the fact that life works against you that's part of the curse, Okay? So yes, I understand how that could look like a contradiction, but that's where the, the balance is. Let's look at chapter 4 then. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is going to focus on this main truth. Living for social justice in this life is vanity. And this is really important to understand. I'm really glad we covered chapter 3 first because chapter 3 is the explanation of chapter 4. Chapter 4 is going to go line by line through this idea of stop trying to fix everything yourself. So, let's read um, verses 1 through 3, if we can start again on the left, or on, on my right, and, and uh, we'll start at verse 1 and go to verse 3, please. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear. Oh, oh sorry, I've hit over, sorry. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors, Now, these three verses explain to us that living is vanity, so living for this earth is going to find, is you're going to find it empty because injustice abounds. You will never find the end of injustice on this broken, sinful planet. Now, I'm going to make comments as we read through the whole chapter, and then I'm going to, when we get to the end of the chapter, I'm going to ask us an important question, okay? So let's read uh, verses 4 through 6, please. Again, I consider all travail and every right work that for this man to be of his neighbor. This is all the vanity and vexation of his spirit. The so these verses tell us that. Discontentment with life is emptiness for two reasons. One, the discontent, and Proverbs is full of this, the discontent won't work for what they want. The people that are most discontent in life are the people that are too lazy to change their circumstances. Okay, number two, if you're content, you're going to be envied by those people that are already discontent. So he's saying, look, if you're trying to live a contented life and make everyone happy around you, give up. Somebody's going to be unhappy with something. Okay, let's read uh, verses 7 through 14 then. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one wrong and there is none exception here. He has neither joy nor glory, yet is there no end of all his evil. Neither is he nor satisfied with this. Neither says he nor dreams of my shame. Also 
two rooms together, they have had to protect them or be warned alone. And if one prevail against them, two shall withstand him, and the threefold cord is not quickly broken. For out of the three days he promised to reign, whereas also Jesus was Jesus was born in the kingdom for next year. So these verses are explaining to us that if you work for yourself, that's emptiness. Because you don't have anybody to enjoy life with. And if you enjoy it for yourself, and you step on everyone to get there. That's empty too because everyone's going to hate you when you got there anyway. And for the people that suffer around you, they find life empty because you're putting them down to get there. So he's making the point that the dream of so many people to work and work and work and be able to say at the end of the day, I am self-made is empty. Let's uh, look at verses uh, 15 and 16. And consider the living which of heaven have the sun, with the second shadow, that shall shine out in its stead. Then will Thank you. Now, verse 15 is a reference to the injustice of a firstborn not rising up in the stead of his parents, okay? So in Israelite culture, you passed on your inheritance to your firstborn. So he's making a cultural reference here, and he's saying it seems unjust when the person who's not supposed to inherit it inherits it instead of the person who is supposed to. And verse 16 says you can't even... That even if you could right all the wrongs in the world, even if you made the world perfect in your generation, who would even remember your work and the next generation would erase it all anyway? So I entitled this chapter The Social Justice Nightmare. Okay? Why is this the social justice nightmare? Why would I say that? Let's let's look at this chapter over again, think through what we've been saying. What are some reasons that, that Solomon gives to make social justice in this world without God a nightmare for people? There's no thanks, no matter how much good you do, you're never going to be recognition or attention. Absolutely. The people that do the most culture-altering work are forgotten. The people that do the groundwork are always forgotten. What's another thing? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. There's and and that's a slightly different point than I was going to make, but that's an excellent point. Solomon is bringing out you cannot right all the wrongs in the world. There's too many. You're one person. What's another thing that we might see in this chapter about why it's a nightmare to try to live for social justice? Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Solomon says that again and again. He's like, if you try to live for this earth, you're going to be constantly disappointed because life's unfair. And it's not going to just give you back exactly what you put into it. That's not how life works. God gets to arrange life. And we live in a sin-cursed world where people mess up stuff all the time. Here's another thought. Even if you gave to everyone who was deserving, you would make all the undeserving people mad. No one's, you're never going to make everyone happy, even if you fix things. Because we live in a broken world. And again, like we said before, even if you righted all of the social wrongs in the whole world, the next generation will start them all over again. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. So what is the solution to this social justice nightmare? It's very simple. Live for eternity. You don't put your stock in how much you can change the society. You put your stock in how you can impact forever. Because that's where God designed us to live. Now, can you fix things in society as God brings them across your path? Yes, you can. You can have an impact. We ought to have an impact. As Christians, we ought to hate certain wrongs in society. Christians ought to hate racism. We ought to. It's wrong. In fact, races don't exist. That's not a biblical thought. So there are certain things that we ought to hate. Absolutely. But if we live to fix society, we've missed God's bigger picture. Because God didn't send Jesus to, fix, to socially reform Israel. That's why Israel rejected him, because he wouldn't socially reform them. Jesus came to die for our sins and make us right with God. And that's what he wants us to live for. Now... Since we are allowed to have a conscience and are allowed to care about people, we have to ask ourselves, when do I work to change something that I'm aware of, and when do I leave it because I'm just one person and that's not God's focus for my life? And the answer is, I don't know, and no one else can know, only you and God will know that answer. You have to have a relationship with God to the point that you can listen to his voice when he tells you, chase after this one and ignore that one. Because if you try to chase, about, chase down everything that you're aware of, you will exhaust yourself because you're trying to do the work of God. And you weren't designed to control the whole universe. But God does have things for all of us to impact, people for us to change. Things that he brings across our paths so we can influence them. And you have to have a relationship with God and the wisdom to understand, this is what I need to work on, and this is what I need to ignore. And that's where wisdom comes in. That's where Proverbs comes in. Because God wants us to have an impact on our society, absolutely, but only subservient to the gospel message. Because the gospel will change people forever. Societal reforms will die with the next generation. Any questions or comments on chapter 4 before we move on to 5? I really appreciate your brother's comment a few minutes ago. I remember in 2015, a few months before my dad died, Mary was in talking to him about the results of the marriage referendum, which were the vast majority voted in favor of whatever it was. And she was upset. And uh, my dad was a big, big fan of the book of Ecclesiastes. He really loved it. He really loved it. He says, Mary, in 100 years, everybody, everybody in Lord it was his philosophy was there's only an answer for it someone's got to stand before God he was, he, he was always trying to get my brother when he became a Christian my dad was always trying to get my brother to read Ecclesiastes because he really got it he studied it himself and uh, he really got it but there was such a 
and wonderful Christian philosophy to have. What if here's everybody dead? Try and do what we could in our own small way. Mm -hmm. We can't change the course of the world. We are guilty if we stay silent. But we're not responsible to make change. We have to understand the difference. Because if you, this, this applies to evangelism. This is so key to Christianity. You're not responsible to change anybody. We're blood guilty if we don't bring the gospel to Luke. But we're not responsible for anybody getting saved. There's a difference. Amen. God does the saving. God does the reform. We're his voice. That's it. We're a conduit. We're a, a vessel. But we are not the reform. And if we ever expect our ourselves to change people, to change society, to save people, to rescue people, we are taking the burden of God and you will be crushed under that burden. The number one thing about, I don't want to say the number one thing, but one of the most important things you will ever realize when you're trying to disciple and counsel other people is you can never take upon yourself the responsibility of what they choose to do with their free will. And you will be crushed constantly if you think I'm responsible for their decisions. You're not. They're responsible for their free will. God's responsible for working in their heart. You're just a voice. That's it. And that's what Solomon is trying to bring out to us. Live for eternity, get connected with God, and stop taking responsibility for what's God's job. Because it, it frees you to have peace when you know God is in charge of this, not me. Let's look at uh, verse uh, chapter 5, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 to 7. So if the next person can start in verse 1, we're going to go to verse 7. The main thought... Uh, that we're going to come across in these seven verses is talkativeness is vanity. I think this one is humorous. Uh, verses, actually, I said one to seven, but let's actually just do one to three. Let's go one to three first. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they be evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. I looked at verse 3 a good bit, because verse 3 has very interesting wording, but this is basically the idea of verse 3. Have you ever been restless when you're trying to go to bed, and your mind is spinning, and your dreams follow that restless pattern, and make no sense? And just seem like a tangled mess, and you wake up, and you're like, I don't know what I was thinking about when I went to bed, and I don't know what I dreamt about when I was sleeping. But I feel more confused than I was yesterday. That's the picture that Solomon wants you to have in your mind, okay? And he says this, that is the person who can't quit talking. They bring confusion to their own minds and to other people's minds, and they are fools in the presence of God. Solomon has this respect for the presence of God that we lack sometimes. Because Solomon says, look, when you get near God, shut up! <laughs> but he's saying, God's in heaven, you're on earth, why are you wanting to talk more than you want to listen? 
we always want to, and I'm guilty of this, we're always wanting to bring all of our problems to God like he never heard of them before and give him the solution to all of them and then give him a path to take action upon the solutions. But Solomon wants us to slow down and say, hold it a second, who's in heaven? Who knows what's going on? And who needs to be quiet and listen to the person who actually understands? He's going to bring out uh, another really important point of being quiet before the presence of God. But I think this is something that maybe we're afraid to do sometimes. Peter had this problem. Peter's hilarious. I love Peter. Peter, when he was following Jesus Christ, always had his opinion inserted into every circumstance. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. And Peter said, well, that's a bad idea, Jesus. Let me fix you on this one. I'm going to correct your thinking. Jesus brings Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter doesn't know what to say. So instead of taking Solomon's advice, Peter talks. And he says, he accidentally insinuates this. Jesus, you, Moses, and Elijah are all so wonderful. Let's worship you right now, all three of you. And God has to come down to remind Peter, actually, there's only one person we're supposed to be worshiping here, and that's Jesus. Peter didn't mean that Elijah and Moses were gods, but Peter had a problem keeping his mouth shut. And so Peter, in the presence of God, got himself in trouble because he couldn't listen. And here's what I want to say on this. We, in this day and age of very busy lives, entertainment-driven culture, and constant noise, mm -hmm. have forgotten how to be silent and enjoy silence. Let me give you a really awkward but hilarious example of how we do this regularly. Have you ever been in a group of people that are praying and for about five seconds, no one prays. And it's like, this awkward silence settles over the room and someone's gonna start praying fast. Otherwise it's awkward. You ever felt that before? What if we embrace the silence to just say, I don't need to speak if I'm not ready to speak. I learned something very important from someone in this church. I used to pray every single time we had a group prayer meeting, every time. And I felt guilty if I didn't pray. And then I noticed someone who I knew had no problem praying, didn't do that. They didn't pray every time we had a group prayer meeting. And I came up to that person and I said, why didn't you pray tonight? And he said, do I need to pray every time? People need to hear my voice. Other people were talking to God and God listened to them just fine and I just enjoyed hearing what they had to say. And I locked that away in my brain and I said, maybe people like me that are extroverts need to learn to listen more than we talk. And maybe, People don't need to hear my prayers as much as they need to be unified in praying in general. And maybe me listening and agreeing with them is more powerful than me thinking about what I'm going to pray about. And this ties into meditation too. Biblical meditation is simply taking time to be silent and think in the presence of God. Some of my best prayer times is when I said nothing mm -hmm. for several minutes. Mm -hmm. But I could feel God place his hand on me. I could feel the warmth of his presence, and I, I couldn't talk. Anything that I would say in that moment would be too unholy for that presence. And if you bask in silence sometimes, allowing yourself to think, yes, we think, we're Christians, we're not going to empty our minds, but we think on God, and let him speak to us in those moments, or just enjoy the fact that he's with us, it's a lot healthier. I mean... I, there, there needs to be a whole nother message that I could preach on meditation because it's, it's amazing. Me the world knows one thing about meditation. Silence and thought is helpful for people. 
They do it all wrong, okay? The world tries to go in this new age route, but the world knows scientifically meditation helps people. And our, our, there are so many studies done. I've read books and there's many, hundreds of books probably you could read on the topic. Our culture is too busy. Yeah. And we can't stand silence. Yeah. And it's destroying our death. Yeah. Because if you always have to talk, you will never be deeper. Because mm-hmm. you will think. And so Solomon is bringing this out, and it's really important for us to remember, sometimes silence in the presence of God is just as healthy as talking, and maybe more beneficial for us right now. All right, let's read verses 4 through 7, please. Thank you. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Sorry, sorry, do we miss three? Do we miss three? Do we miss three? Miss three, yeah. Okay, let's, let's start with verse 3, and then we'll go to verse 7. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for you have no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Whither, whither it that thou shouldest not vow, that the vow shouldest vow and not to pay. Suffer not their mouth to cause their flesh to cease. Let them say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at their voice and destroy the works of thine hands? Then the multitude of dreams and many words that were also discovered by thee spoke to your God. So what is the main idea that's being brought across in verses four through seven? God takes our promises more seriously than we take them. God says, I'd rather you not promise me anything good than you promise me something good and don't bring it to me. Now, that's not an encouragement for us to not do things for God. But it's a seriousness that we need to have. God takes lying very seriously. And if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, God took their lying personal. He said, you lied to the Holy Ghost. I, from the context, you will not see that they prayed to God about that. Or promised it in prayer to God. But God says, you do it before my people. You do it before my church. You tell my people you're going to do something. You told me, and you better keep it. So we need to take our word very seriously. Because God does. God doesn't take this business of, oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. I didn't mean to say it that way. I really need to go back because, now look, I don't understand God is forgiving. I've said things to God that were stupid before and I've had conversations with him about it. I said, God, I was really stupid to say that. Can you forgive me and release me from this point? I've had that conversation with God, okay? It's okay. God is forgiving. But God doesn't take the business of, I didn't really feel like keeping that promise. Yeah. Because God takes our promises seriously, and He is truth, and He expects us to reflect Him in that area. And how are we going to be different than the world? We don't care about our promises just as much as they don't. 
They need to see Christ in our honesty. You know, I have heard many stories, and one, one story that comes to my mind is about Abraham Lincoln. And when he, as I think a teenager, maybe a young man, he was studying to be a lawyer, and he borrowed a book from someone, and he told them on a certain day he would bring it back to them. And whatever the circumstance that ended up happening, he wasn't able to meet them the way he had intended on meeting them. And the day was running out, and he was like, I've got to keep my word. So he walked miles and miles and miles from his house to the other person's house to deliver one book that he borrowed so it wouldn't be a day late. Hmm. And the person said, you don't need to do this. You just borrowed a book, you could have brought it to me next week. He said, no, I told you it would be back on this day, and I keep my word, it will be back. Our culture doesn't take a word like that. It's very, very, uh, built, it's even built into our humor, right? We will, we will say things like, I'll do that job for you on Tuesday, Mrs. But I won't tell you which Tuesday. It's built into our culture to joke about, <laughs> we don't care about our word, but Christians ought to care. And it ought to be a big deal to us that we will do what we promised and we will always do it because our God is faithful and we will reflect his character. All right, let's read um, to the end of the chapter, verses uh, 8 to 20, please. Or, I'm sorry, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter, but let's not read it all in the same chunk. Before, before we do, we're going to read verses 8 and 9. But before we do, um, the main thought that he's going to start to transition to now is that riches are vanity. Okay, He's going to talk about the emptiness of accumulating wealth. So let's read verses uh, 8 and 9 to start with, please. What is Solomon trying to get across in these two verses here? Absolutely. God is the great leveler of mankind. And he will bring justice to the poor that are mistreated. And he subjects the king to the very land he treads on. The king cannot live without the agriculture that he walks on. And the poor person will be vindicated by God. So again, like we were talking before, don't worry. Yes, we impact what we can. But don't worry about it. God will bring the justice back. Okay, let's uh, read from verse 10 to verse 17, please.
There's a soul in the world which I have been on the side. I have seen on the side. Namely, which is death for the fullness thereof to be ahead of mm -hmm. those which with which is perished by Jesus today, and he begat a son. <coughs> and there is nothing in his hand. And he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to Goa. Thank you. Now, I wish we had time to talk about this. We've got to be finished soon here. There are six reasons that Solomon gives for wealth being a horrible reason to exist. The first one is he says you can never have enough. The second one he gives is that the more wealth that is available, the more people that want that available wealth. Right. The third one is that wealth serves no practical purpose, only to be looked at. I found that very funny. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Buy all this stuff so you can sit around and look at it? Wealth brings worry and endless work to maintain it, he says. Fifth one, losing wealth is devastating, especially when you have nothing to pass on to your children. Such disaster often leads to depression, sorrow, anger, all of which lead to physical sicknesses. Mm -hmm. Sixth one, you can't take it with you. The rich die as the poor. They bring nothing with them but that which they entered into the world with anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, us in the room here today, we here might think, that is very true. I think millionaires ought to be careful. Mm -hmm. But we're very wealthy people. Yeah. Everybody in this room can fall into the trap of wealth accumulation. Even if you are on the lowest spectrum of wealthy people in Ireland. Even if you're lower class. Why is that? Well, very simply, Ireland is filthy rich. We are a very rich country even if we don't like to think about it. Did you know by being the average family in Ireland, you're in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world? By living in this country, you will never reach, you will never reach lower class worldwide. Never, because the government won't let you. They will feed you and house you and give you clean water. You can never reach lower class in the worldwide spectrum living in Ireland. We struggle with wealth. We do. Let's be honest. We're wealthy and we like it that way. And so when Jesus says to us, it's harder for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go to your eye of a needle, he's talking to all of the Irish people. Mm -hmm. He's saying, guys, it's harder for you to be 
minded about the kingdom of heaven, to think about eternity. It's harder for Irish people to think about eternity than it is for them to do what's impossible in this world because we have too much to lose. We do, as a whole culture, we do. We have too much to lose. And so it is very difficult for us. So I have a question for us today. If it's that hard, if it's that difficult, is it really wise for us to follow the path that all of Ireland is going and try to set up our kids to be wealthier than us? Mm. Is education and a better standard of living for our next generation really what they need? Or do they need to be wealthier in things that we are poor in? Mm -hmm. Maybe they need God at a deeper dose than we have. Maybe they need more family than we grew up with. I'm not saying that you shouldn't think about giving to your kids, but I am saying let's stop pretending that we're not already wealthy. Because we are. And God knows it. So the disciples asked Jesus when he said, you've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. You've got to be, it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven, basically. They asked him, then how can these things be? How will we go to heaven? Jesus said, with man, these things are not possible. But with God, all things are possible. We can live heaven-minded lives in Ireland. But we have to choose that what we're wearing, what we drive, what we live in will never define us mm -hmm. and will not define what we give to our children. We must be defined by how we impact eternity and that alone. Let's pray. Amen.